Good morning. Uh, my name is Rachel. If you guys would actually stand for the reading of the word. Tilt this up. All right. Um, Matthew 6, 5 through 13. This is NIV. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, we humbly come before you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the newness of the new year. Um, Lord, we, we know that you're making all things new, and we are new creations in you, Jesus. So we just thank you, and um, we thank you for the ability to gather together, keep us safe, be with our church, those who are here and not here. Bless Cameron today, Lord, just speak, speak through him to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Right. Well, one way of, um, of stating the goal of the Christian life, you could talk about it a number of ways, but definitely one way to talk about it uh, is, is the idea of, of, of having Christ formed in you. Um, you know, in Galatians 4, Paul says, uh, he leads up to this phrase, he says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Um, but this, this idea of being formed by something or towards something, uh, is, it's not just a religious idea. It's not just a Christian idea even. Um, in fact, even in the Bible, in Romans 12, Paul says, don't be conformed, uh, don't be formed, you could say, to the world. Uh, he says, instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, in this excellent book, I, it, it, it kind of made waves a few years ago. I can't remember what year it came out. It's called You Are What You Love uh, by a guy named James K.A. Smith, who's sort of a Christian theologian, philosopher, guy, uh, at times cultural critic. Um, in You Are What You Love, he, he argues something you've probably heard before. You've probably heard it at, at your time at Door of Hope uh, multiple times, uh, this idea that every person is a worshiper of, of some kind or another. Um, whether or not they're religious, um, our species was created by God to worship. We are, we are a worship-oriented species, humanity. Um, and, and the tragically brilliant novelist, essayist, David Foster Wallace, uh, he captured this so well at this famous commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College, 2005. I don't know, this, this thing kind of went viral. If, if, if that doesn't ring any bells for you, you could look it up on YouTube. 
I think it's just audio only. You can listen to it. But, but Wallace gives this address where it's really profound. And, and the man, as far as we know, was not a Christian, though he seemed intrigued with some, some Christian ideas. But here's what Wallace said uh, to this group of college students. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he says, and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, he says, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible, that's an incredible word, infrangible. I have no idea what it means. I'm going to start using it though. Some infrangible set of ethical principles um, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And here's Wallace's description here. You can take it or leave it. But he says, The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. It's a long quote, but it's, it's a good one. Uh, we, would, we would take issue with some of what Wallace says there, but certainly his, his uh, diagnosis of, of a culture of worship, I think, is right on. And the diagnosis that anything that we tune our hearts to toward worship will eat us alive. He, he posits some other positive examples, but we would say the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus Christ is the only one that's not going to do that to us. is the only one that's fit to carry the weight of your worship. And Smith goes on to argue that our worship, uh, and therefore our deepest love, and therefore our destiny in terms of soul formation and character uh, and all this stuff is inextricably tied up with our habits. The, the little things even that we do day in and day out, some of which we pay no attention to at all, are shaping how and what we love, and therefore what we worship, and therefore uh, what we're becoming, and who we're becoming. And I, I think it's true to say that all people, every person that's ever lived in this world uh, since, since the fall uh, it has continually experienced life being sort of cross-pressured uh, by sort of the forces that are antagonistic to God. We've talked about them as, as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, the siren songs of each of these things ha- have come for the people of God uh, continually. But I would say in a day when so many of our habits 
revolve around our phones and the 24-hour news cycle and social media and film and TV and constant advertisement, most of which is flowing from cultures and worldviews and philosophies uh, set against God and the values of his kingdom. It's possible, it's at least a possibility that the, the, the sort of baseline, like character-shaping, forming things and forces uh, now are greater than any other time in human history. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know how to objectively quantify that. But it's possible that, that this thing right here is exerting more shaping and forming power over you and over me, speak absolutely of myself in this, than, than maybe any other instrument in human history. And it's only been on the scene like, what, 12 years, something like that? Um, so what do we do? If it is true that, that especially in the modern and postmodern world we live in, we're, we're being formed at a rate in directions counter to God and his kingdom values and his vision of the good life and all these things, uh, maybe more than any other time in human history, what do we do? What do we do about that? We've got to do something. Well, uh, one of the answers that followers of Jesus uh, have given through the ages is this idea of spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. First um, Timothy 4.7 is, is kind of where we get this idea of, of spiritual discipline as a, as a word. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to train yourself for godliness, or the NASB, it's discipline yourself for godliness. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Actively put them in front of your mind. And the disciplines are part of, of the proactive way that we deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. And, and there will be all kinds of situations where we have to reactively do that. We have to reactively deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Uh, but there's ways in which we can proactively do it. I think the spiritual disciplines are one of those categories. And so this is why we're going to kick off 21, 2021 with just, just a look at just five. We're just going to keep it short. Uh, Door of Hope Southeast did this series with this title um, over the last few months. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea, especially rounding out the year or maybe even better, kicking off a new year. Um, so we said, can we, just, uh, can we just plagiarize you guys? And they said, sure, have at it. So we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to just take five weeks. Uh, there are endless, I mean, there, there are tons of churches and ministries and books that lay out all kinds of like really involved and deep and rich and broad kind of perspectives on spiritual disciplines. Uh, there, there are way more than five even that are attested to in the scriptures. But what we wanted to do is just look at five that we believe are sort of key and crucial, sort of just absolute bedrock. Because what I found is that when you have, oh, here's 20 disciplines that would be good for you to embrace. All of a sudden, it just becomes this endless list. This, there's, no way I can, there's no way I can do this. Any, there's no way I can do any of all of this. Therefore, I'm not going to do any of this. Um, so we, we, we want to start simply. Um, and we think in the new year is a great sort of natural opportunity to sort of choose to begin new habits, even. Uh, so that's, that's the timing for this. But uh, the, the, why the five we're particularly going to look at, we're going to look at the disciplines specifically of prayer, of service, uh, of scripture, um, of community, and of witness. Uh, 
And again, these are just, we think, the most sort of well-attested, foundational, and the ones that are exemplified by the characters, by the disciples, by the believers of the New Testament uh, most often. Um, and I, I also want to say, like, as we do this, uh, I, I actually hope this feels quite a bit different from a typical sermon that we give in that um, our, our I know for myself as a, as a preacher even, I can, I can be pretty weak when it comes to like, connecting the truth that we're encountering to practice and action and application. And what, okay, so what, what do we actually do with this in real life? What's, what difference is this actually going to make? And the hope is that these, these messages, of course, are going to unpack the scriptures, but then move very quickly into actual practical, simple application. Um, and if you're surprised, I mean, today, even as I'm glancing over my notes, like, I, it's simple. We want it to be simple. We don't want these to be overbearing uh, and sort of overly complex and complicated things that, that, that we're holding up for our community. Um, one other thing is wh- why disciplines of grace specifically? And Josh White, I, I think, came up with that title, and I thought it was brilliant uh, because um, I know for myself, and I'm guessing for some of you, that the second we start talking about pragmatic things to do, like a spiritual discipline, uh, we instantly begin to displace the grace of God in that, uh, which is our only hope for salvation. Um, whenever you have a checklist of things, and surprise, surprise, you start not meeting all the things on that checklist— it's very easy to go, oh my gosh, I'm a spiritual failure. Oh my gosh, God is so disappointed with me. Oh my gosh, fill in the blank. So I think anytime we enter into a, t- a kind of programmatic, practical, like we actually want to call all of us to do these things regularly kind of situation, we have to constantly remind ourselves that salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, like welcome into the family and kingdom of God, the power to actually be changed into the image of Christ, and the final promise of like eternal life with God in the new world that he's creating. These things can never be earned. There's not an inch that we can add to what Christ has already accomplished for us in all these areas. And spiritual disciplines are not and will never be a way that you earn favor with God. Never. We are constantly going to be tempted to think that they are just by virtue of entering into them, uh, but, but they will never be that. He's already loved you and shown you, if you are in Christ, more favor than you could possibly imagine, and you can't add to it. But the correct order of operations is when we see that, when we see his loving grace, when we see his mercy, when we taste his forgiveness, when we see his goodness, and we trust him, then we are motivated to actually know him more, to serve him more faithfully, to, to follow after him more closely. But not, we don't get his grace because we follow closely. We get his grace and then we're motivated to follow closely. Um, this is not things we do in order to be saved, but as our response to being saved by Christ. And so these disciplines, we, even just in the titling of the series, we want to remind ourselves that these disciplines are motivated by grace, they're sustained by grace, uh, they're empowered by grace. Okay, that's, that's what we're doing and why we're doing it. So the one we're going to look at today is prayer. Um, prayer, which seems to me, when you read the New Testament, 
and you've got this, this uh, collection of believers, uh, some of which could read, some of which probably uh, couldn't. Um, you, had a, you didn't even have a New Testament formed. You, you read the Gospels, you read the letters. Uh, the New Testament was still being written. It was still being distributed. It was still being uh, formed, in a sense. It wouldn't be collected and canonized for years after, uh, after Jesus' death, at least. Um, so, so even reading the New Testament, because it didn't exist yet, uh, at least in full, was not one of the primary disciplines of the early Christians. You ever realize that? Uh, those that could read would have gone to the Old Testament, of course, uh, which was the Christian Bible at the time. Still half of our Bible, over half of our Bible now. Um, but I, I think that the bedrock pr- practice of the earliest Christians, uh, the one that they could do anytime, any place, constantly, was prayer. And the simplest way to define prayer, there's complicated definitions. Let's just stick with a couple simple ones. Uh, how about talking to God? It, or, or Donald Blesch, uh, he says, it's a conversation of the heart with the living God. And for Christians, prayer is both, it's both an incredible gift when you realize that the God of the universe, that hopefully we all believe is real, he exists, uh, he's, he's revealed himself in history through his word and most prominently in the person of Jesus, He's created everything. He's holy. He's good. He's, he's all-powerful. He's all these things. He offers his ear to you, to you, like, as an individual. And we flippantly, like, presume on that, and we, or we don't care about it. We forget about it, and we reduce prayer to something else. But it's the God of creation saying, I'm available to you. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. And the things that you want, the things that you need, I want you to bring them to me and I want to answer you. So it's an incredible gift and it's a responsibility in that we are, we are commanded all over the scriptures to pray, to cultivate a life of prayer. Um, one of the best places to learn about prayer in the scriptures is the Psalms, uh, which is like a prayer book of the Bible. And when you read the Psalms, uh, most of us will get scandalized from time to time because there are things that are so intense in the Psalms. And what the Psalms remind us of is, not every Psalm is like this, but what the Psalms as a whole remind us of is that one of the chief values of prayer, one of the most important aspects is vulnerability. People are confessing like wretched things from their heart to God, fully confident that he can take it. They're accusing God, they're crying out to God, they're expressing their frustration these are the parts that most of us kind of withhold, and we don't, we don't connect that sort of lament and sadness and expressing what's, what's actually going on with you to him. Vulnerability is at the heart of healthy prayer. Um, my guess is, uh, all that said, most of you are probably, okay, yeah, sure, I've heard that before. My guess is that many of us uh, struggle with prayer. And uh, if, if it is true that prayer and, and Scripture are kind of the two most foundational bedrock spiritual disciplines, I've always been one that's had a more natural and easy time, like being in the Word of God rather than speaking to God. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is for me. I know I'm not the only one in this room. Um, there are many of you for whom your natural inclination is toward other disciplines. You really find peace and solace and and ease and comfort and success 
in those other ones. But for a lot of us, we're probably going, yeah, yeah, I know prayer is important, but I don't do it. <laughs> not with any sort of legitimacy, not with any sort of earnestness, not with any sort of frequency. Um, and it, it makes you wonder, or makes you wish, if there were just some place where Jesus himself would just give us kind of some clear direction, just make it simple and make it easy. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, Matthew 6, 5 begins with, and when you pray, <laughs> do this. So although there are a number, number of places we could go uh, to, look, to look at this, I think, I think the most foundational place we can go is to the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer. When he says, when you pray, do it like this. If Jesus said that, we should probably pay attention and let that be the center and the heartbeat of our understanding of prayer. So let's take it piece by piece. Um, the, first, the first thing he, he, he speaks of here, I think, captures the humble heart of prayer. So Jesus, again, he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There will always be a temptation uh, one of two sides here. Um, one is a, a temptation uh, to utilize prayer to sort of appear more spiritual or more amazing or more wise or more whatever than you are. Um, there will always be a temptation to sort of make a show of your prayer. Um, or on the flip side, because you might be around people or a culture that does that, you might be driven to deep insecurity like, look how grand and how lofty the prayers of these people are. I, I, I don't pray like that. I'm not like that. I must, I must be a terrible Christian. I must be, I must be worthless. Um, but what Jesus calls out first thing is that don't do that. Your prayer is not meant to be a spiritual currency before others. It's meant fundamentally to be between you and me. And I think the idea is that, and if that's a temptation for you, then don't even pray around anybody. <laughs> like, there may be some of us for whom, like, praying around people only stirs our hearts to sin. It says, go in your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. It's about humble intimacy with God. Anything else is, it's, it's not sincere, it's not genuine prayer. Then he moves into another, kind of another angle here. Uh, he talks about the simplicity of prayer in verses 7 and 8. He says, when you pray, he says, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And this is another one. I, I, I suspect if you've been a Christian for, for much time at all, uh, if you've ever attended like a prayer meeting or a prayer gathering or a prayer conference or something, um, you've probably experienced, experienced this, the sort of like the endless prayer of someone. <laughs> and sometimes really beautiful. 
Um, and sometimes it's just um, whatever the opposite of that is. <laughs> uh, that there's this belief, and we all experience it. it you know, a, a group of us just, just prayed before the service, and, and there's like this moment where, even in my own heart, I'm like, oh, should I, like, how, should I pray longer? I don't know, I'm the pastor here. Maybe I should sort of like, you know, really, really pastor this moment uh, as, I, as I pray with, with my friends here. There will always be a temptation to think that you're going to be heard for your many words. And shockingly, like Jesus says, don't do that. <laughs> Don't be like that. Your father already knows what you need, so keep it simple. Be honest, but be simple. And we have to qualify this. Like, there are times where in the, in the Gospels where it says Jesus went and he prayed all night. This is not to say that long, sustained times of prayer are wrong or weird. Like, they can be beautiful and good and, and like, soul-filling and sincere, all of those things. Um, but if it's long for longness sake, if it's longness for, uh, because of the misunderstood idea that, uh, that God's somehow impressed with that, then it's just, it's time wasted. It's time wasted. The simplicity of prayer is something Jesus desires for his people. And then we get to uh, what we'll just say, it's the king's prayer. He says, okay, don't do this, don't do this. You know, you know how you are to pray? I'm going to tell you, verse 9, then pray then like this. And hopefully, I, I mean, probably most of us have this memorized just from exposure to it over the years. If you don't, this would be a beautiful, beautiful scripture to memorize. But Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Period. Um, I, I don't know for how many of us, like, praying this prayer... Or, or, or praying prayers deeply rooted in this prayer is, is a habit. Uh, but I confess, it's not for me. Um, my prayers tend to be a much more scattershot, much more reactive to circumstances most of the time. Uh, but but Jesus, Jesus says, pray like this. And I, I can't help but think what he means by that is pray like this. <laughs> You know, <laughs> like he, he just tells us that this is, this is the king's model for prayer right here. Um, and so I just, I just want to briefly look at it and explore it um, and, and see what we can learn from it. But uh, hopefully maybe something that you, you notice is that it's, it's roughly two halves. Uh, verses 9 and 10 are sort of this Godward orientation, and then verses 11 through 13 have this sort of us communal orientation. And uh, I, I, most people don't, don't think that's coincidental. It's, it's the idea that Jesus, even in the prayer he models for us and gives to us, is reinforcing what, what he calls his greatest and most central uh, command. Uh, 
when he's asked in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The, the heart of God for his people is boiled down to love God and love people. And the prayer that he's left for us is broken down into love God and love people. Um, this functions as a prayer of petition. It's, it's, it's asking God for things related to him and related to us. Uh, but but it's, it's also just a reminder. It's meant to be a reminder and a motivator. When you engage in this prayer, you are tuning your heart to the most central heartbeat of God himself. That's powerful. That's powerful. And we, we certainly don't have to confine our prayers to only these words. Uh, you know, for, for example, even, even Jesus himself in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke records a very similar time when they ask him, how do we pray? Uh, this, it's condensed and it's, di- it's slightly different. Um, the two halves are there. It's very similar, but it's not the same words. This isn't like a magical formula necessarily. Um, uh, Jesus and the apostles played, prayed plenty of other prayers as well, but, but I do think that if Jesus says pray like this, we do very well to make this the bedrock of our prayer lives and, and, and to make it a habit. So I just want to quickly look at the, the parts of this prayer. The first is the address at the top of verse 9. Our Father in heaven. Uh, the prayer begins with the one that we address, a reminder of who it is we speak to, but he doesn't use an impersonal title for God, which would have been more common, say, in, for, for the Jews, for the Israelites. He uses the word Father. So the one that we address is the Father himself, loving, gracious, the one who desires the absolute best for you, the one who longs for a relationship with you, all of this secured for us in Jesus. This is the one we are stepping into conversation with when we pray, our Father who is in heaven. That's who we're praying to. We can't forget that. And then he moves into uh, the prayers toward God. And, and, and there's kind of three main components here. First, he prays, uh, hallowed be your name. And, and in the Greek text, it's, it's an it's, it's a, a imperative. It's not, it's not a statement that your name is hallowed or your name is holy or your name is full of glory or whatever. It's a request that your name might be glorified. It's that, it's that people might come to know the supreme weightiness, weight, dignity of the name of God, that his fame would increase amongst the world. That's the first part of the prayer. It's a prayer for his glory to go out. The second is your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. It's, I think it's the idea here is that it's, it's a prayer for the full coming of the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring at his second coming. Um, it's, it's, it's a future looking like God. It's the plea of like, when are you going to make all this evil and all this sin and all this death and all this sickness and all this destruction and all this injustice and fill in the blank? When are you going to put an end to it? Jesus, God, Father, Spirit, bring your kingdom 
Now, bring your kingdom soon. That's the prayer. Your kingdom come. May the days of evil come to an end. And then I think the remainder of that verse is kind of best thought of as one unit. It says, your, or previous slide still. It says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not just, the fu- not just bring the future kingdom, but in the here and now, may your values and your heart, your vision for life, may it flourish in the here and now. Just as it is in, in heaven where God is, may it be here where we are. It's not only the future that we wait for, it's for his work through and in and to us in the here and the now as well, is what this prayer reminds us of. Those are the prayers toward God. And then finally, it's the, it's the prayers toward us. And it's very easy to overlook this, uh, the fact that these are all <laughs> uh, a plural, second person plural. It's, it's not just me, uh, it's us, or first person plural, I should say. It's us this day, our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us. This is, the idea here is that this is communal. And so it's meant to be prayed in community, you know, alongside other believers. But even as you pray this in isolation by yourself, um, it's meant to be prayed both for yourself and for those you are in community with, for the other people of God. Um, we do it a disservice to reduce it to an individualistic thing that's only about what, you know, what God can do for me or for you individually. And so three components here. He says, God, give us this day our daily bread. It's, it's a prayer for the basic material needs of us. And so it's, it's a prayer for food. And, and, and that daily is important because it reminds us of the, the kind of... Uh, the, the delivery of the manna from heaven, God would provide daily to, the Israel, to Israel in the wilderness what they needed for that day, and they were forbidden from storing it up for future days, in fact. He said, I'm going to give you what you need for this day. Just trust me. And that's what we're to pray for. Lord, today, give me what I need. I'm not going to worry about the future. I'm not going to worry about stockpiling. I'm not going to worry about, uh, you know, whatever else. Just give us this day what we need. Give us our daily bread. Lord. Um, the second, he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And here it's a, it's a reminder that God has forgiven us, but it's also a reminder not to presume on his forgiveness. I mean, I want to be very careful here. We can be certain if we're in Christ, our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven, but he still commands us to continue to pray for forgiveness, to continue to humble ourselves before him, ask for his forgiveness, but then also to let that motivate us to, to take that, what we've experienced, and give it to others, to let the forgiveness we've received push outward toward others. And then finally, the last is to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. It's a prayer uh, for faithfulness. It's a prayer for conformity to sort of the the moral and ethical vision of Jesus. It's a prayer for protection of temptation and specifically temptation that would lead us into sin, uh, into partnership with the world, into partnership with those forces that are antagonistic to God. 
and what he's about. Okay, that was quick. But that's the Lord's Prayer. Um, and again, if you're like me, I'm guessing that a ton of your prayer life is motivated by sort of the scramble of reacting to circumstances. And that's okay. Like, when something tragic or scary or stressful happens, um, going to God is right. <laughs> like, do not hear for a second that this is a deterrent to, like, taking, taking your concerns to God in the moment. Of course. Of course we're meant to. Uh, but, uh, but it's not only those moments. It's not only those moments. Think of it if we treated, like, our human, our human parents this way, or if your children treated us this way, or your closest friends treated you this way. Um, in, any relationship that's only built on when they need something, when you need something, um, it's not a sincere relationship. Uh, it might be necessary. It might be a source of, of help, but it's not a sincere relationship. The richest relational benefits of prayer come through regularly pushing, pursuing God in prayer simply because he's made himself available, because you know that he wants to be with you and you're going to take him up on that because you want to know him. Not because you need something, although it's fine, we're all going to need things, but more fundamentally than that because we want to know him. And, you know, this is a specific kind of, very specific prayer that's given, but, but Jesus never gave a simple formula for prayer at all times and all places, as we said. He, he prayed in other ways. The disciples prayed in other ways. Um, and I would, you know, be way out of line to say there's only one way we can apply what's, what's going on here to be faithful in prayer. Um, but nonetheless, I, I do just want to give like a couple specific ideas related specifically to the Lord's Prayer that if, if you're not in the habit of doing these things, uh, that maybe as we enter into this new year, you might be able to make this like sort of a, a regular habit, a regular practice in your life. Um, or maybe these ideas will spark something in you that, that can go elsewhere. The first is, I remember um, when Tim Mackey taught through this passage, in this, I remember it was in this building, maybe 2014 or something like that. Um, he, he talked about how the earliest Christians, they were in the habit of, of doing the daily prayers at the temple. Uh, as, you know, they're, they're, those early Christians who were Jews had this interesting relationship with Judaism because they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that they had believed. Um, and so they, they viewed themselves still as, as faithful Jews, but the Messiah had come. So we, like everything gets reoriented around Jesus now. But of course, the, the mainstream Jewish community was like, no, he's not the, he's not the Messiah. And so like, this, this rift happened over time. But in the early days, the Christians continued to worship at the temple. And they would continue to go to morning, midday, and evening prayers as well, very, very often. And, and Tim pointed out that, one, that an early ancient Christian tradition was, was actually, it, it ended up molding into this idea of praying the Lord's Prayer specifically three times a day. Um, letting that just be a, a repetitious kind of returning habit of the day. Um, and so I would, I would put that before you. Um, and this is something I actually, I actually plan to do uh, just, as, just as part of like trying to, trying to get my prayer life in order in this new year um, is to set three times a day. For, for me, it's going to be first thing when you wake up, kind of right midday, middle of the day, 
And then last thing before bed, uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, and it's not, it's not just reciting a magic formula. There's not power so much in just, oh, I memorized this, I, said, I, I spoke the words aloud or whatever. But it's actually the idea of three times a day taking a moment to stop and to pray the things that Jesus commanded us to pray for and to be reminded of the heart of God for his people, like, like the deepest things that we are meant to long for as it relates to both God and neighbor, to be brought to our heart and our mind every day at the beginning point, the midpoint, and the end point. There is power in that. If we reduce it to rote formula, uh, maybe not so much, but if we can make those moments substantive moments of like entering into that, even if it's 30 seconds to pray this, uh, that's the kind of thing that'll have long-term impact, I believe, in forming your heart, forming my heart uh, toward his. The, the other way, another thing to do is not so much to stick with, with the words of the Lord's Prayer, but to, to con- conceptualize it as the categories of the Lord's Prayer. So it's just, as you pray, think through each of those kind of units. Open with the acknowledgement of the Father and of his welcoming of you and your requests. Give him thanksgiving and praise. But then to move into uh, prayer's act of love towards God, pray for his glory, pray for his kingdom, pray for his will to bear influence in our world, and all the particular ways that come to mind. Not limiting yourself just to those words, but, okay, God, where is an area where my heart is anguishing right now because your kingdom isn't here in full? I'm going to pray for that. Where, where do I need his will to be done in my life or in the life of my community, maybe even more specifically right now, to pray for that? And the same for yourself and for, for your community. Pray for physical needs as a reminder, okay, what, what are the needs that I'm aware of? And as you pray, you'll also be motivated to think, how can I be a part of the solution to actually go and, <laughs> and, and meet those needs perhaps? What do I need to confess? Where, where have I embraced sin in my life? Where do I need to, to, to seek genuine repentance before God? And also, where, do I need, where am I reminded of where I need to do that for others? Where do I need to forgive? And then the prayer for protection from temptation and sin. How often do you pray that God would just keep you from sin? Something we're meant to do. So I said this was going to be simple. I, I hope it's not insultingly simple. But when Jesus told us to pray, he said, pray with humility, pray with simplicity, and pray like this. And I can't help but think if we as a community, as we started into 2021, well, you know, whether it's specifically morning, midday, evening, or whatever for you, but if we each had the, had, had the desire to daily commit to some rhythm of engaging in prayer on Jesus' terms, to bring ourselves into relationship with him on his terms in a way that was, was habit-forming, regular and ongoing, I, I, think it, I think it would change everything. Um, and, you know, there are greater depths of prayer. There's, there's longer prayer. There's all kinds of different techniques. And, and uh, you know, at, every week we're actually going to publish a little, like, further study thing. We're going to recommend good books if you're interested in going deeper. Um, but I think my, my, my point is there, there are other places to go in prayer, but not less than this, if that makes sense. 
Certainly not less than this. Certainly not less than praying the things that Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. So as a community door of Hope Northeast, my hope is that we could become a people in light of constant pressures to be formed elsewhere and by other things and into other kinds of people, that we would start simply, like (laughs) non-flashily, by cultivating a habit of prayer in the way that Jesus very simply prescribed. And if that, if, if for some of you that seems too simple and insulting, like, that's awesome. I'm glad that your prayer life is, that this seems so elementary. But, but if, you're, if your prayer life is scattershot and, and all of this, like, this is a place to begin and to see, like, what the Lord might do as we begin to view it as sort of gathering kindling, like, like committing ourselves to praying the Lord's Prayer or praying in the spirit of the Lord's Prayer daily, multiple times daily as a way of gathering kindling. Only he can set it on fire. That's going to bring the kind of transformation that he desires. But we have a responsibility to kind of prep the soil, gather the kindling, and see what he does with that. Amen? And if you fail, if you're fired up and say, you know, I'm going to start something, and next week you're off the track, there's grace for you. This will never be how you earn God's favor, ever. The cross is how you have earned God's favor. But may that cross drive you back into a relationship with the God who has done that for you and who wants to know you more tomorrow than he does today and more the day after that than he does tomorrow. Amen? Amen.